Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Chloe Miranda is the sommelier at Bertie G's Restaurant in Santa Monica, California. Now, Bertie G's is one of our favorite restaurants, not just because the food and wine is amazing, but because they use a significant percentage of organically grown ingredients and feature many wines grown organically or better. I'm just going to say it. Chloe is my favorite sommelier. She's a consummate and egoless professional, asks great questions before trying to suggest a wine, offered us tastes of multiple wines so that we could sample before committing, and generally put us at ease with the entire wine selection process. When Chloe is our host, we always end up drinking more wine than we thought we would, which I think would also make Chloe's bosses happy too. The other thing that I like about Chloe is that she's self-taught and has not gone through the traditional certification process to get to become a sommelier. In this interview, she discusses some of the pros and cons of taking this path and how she continues to educate herself about wine. We also talk about some of the market trends with regard to organic wine, some of Chloe's perspectives, and the tips and tricks and secrets that have helped make her a successful sommelier. I hope you enjoy and thanks for listening. The sponsor for today's episode is Centralis Wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S Wine. You can learn more about Centralis at centraliswine.com. And full disclosure, Centralis is my winery. I started Centralis because I noticed a disconnect between the values that many wine drinkers have and the kinds of wine they choose to drink. I wanted to give those of you who love wine an option to buy wine that reflects your values. So Centralis is built on two pillars. The first is that Centralis wine will always be made with, at minimum, organically grown grapes. And the second is that we will always tell you every ingredient that was added during winemaking. Our first vintage will be released very soon. In fact, it may be available by the time you hear this. And it's pretty limited. So if you want to get some, please go to our website, centraliswine.com, and sign up for our wine list. Or go ahead and buy wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. We're also on Instagram at Centralis Wine, and I can't wait to share our wines with you. Chloe, thank you so much for joining me and doing this. This is really great to have you, and I can't wait to hear your perspective yeah, on things. Yeah, so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so your job is a sommelier. And right, <laughs> just want to <laughs> clarify that for the record. Um, that was <laughs> so I'm sure it's been an interesting time for you during this pandemic. Um, let's talk about normal time. What 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 is your job normally? What I mean, what do you see as your job, and what is the reality of your job? What do you want it to be, and what is it? Well, the reality, I guess, simply put, is to sell wine and as much of it as I can for the rest of us. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> yeah. You're my hero. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is an awesome job and I'm so grateful and it's amazing. Um, I think going deeper into that, I think the ways to be successful in selling wine is to, you know, get the right style of wine at the right price point in front of people. And that, you know, it's a, it's a delicate dance. It's about creating a good rapport it's about knowing what your chef is cooking too, so that these pairings are 
on point. I think that ultimately wine is a source of elevation for a dining experience. And that's something I'm really passionate about. I'm so lucky to work with an amazing chef who makes such dynamic and interesting food and the pairings are always so surprising. So I think that definitely is an added bonus if you're working with that as well. Um, And do you, do you go through the menu with wine in mind? Like, do you go line by line through the menu and say, okay, we have this wine. I think that would be great. Or these wines I think would be great with this dish or is it more, you do do that. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and our, sous chefs and chef are so great about instructing us and and allowing us to taste. And so at five o'clock when we open, we'll taste whatever new dish is up and I will bring ideas based on the ingredients that I know that are in it. And it's so funny because oftentimes I'm wrong because it sounds like it's going to be this super heavy dish and it ends up being really like bright and light. And so that's, that's really fun for me is when I get surprised. That's nice. Well, yeah. and maybe we're jumping right into this, but let's talk about some pairing. Like what sure. what are some things that you've found that surprised you and and what do you use? I mean, what are some guidelines that you've used or that you could pass on to people or even just ideas to pass on? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are certain pairings that are uh, classic. So, you know, we have a dish that has truffle butter and duck confit and mushrooms. And like, of course, I'm going to put burgundy next to that, right? Um, But then we have dishes like this beautiful lamb loin and everyone's like, oh, lamb, Syrah for sure. But it's marinated in beets and molasses and there's saffron yogurt and dill. And so you have all these bright Mm. flavors and you have all this acidity from the yogurt that you don't want to drown it with an intense Syrah. So I bring a Syrah rosé that's a little full body, maybe with some age on it. And it is mind blowing how perfect it is. And people look scared when I bring it to them, but then I <laughs> pour it taste for them. They're like, okay, I get it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Gosh, I could get hungry already. It's I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Well, let's also say, where do you work? Oh, yeah, that's probably pretty important. Um, I work at Birdie G's in Santa Monica. Our chef is Jeremy Fox. He claims Fox, yeah. It's part of a of, of a bigger group, right? The Rustic Canyon restaurant yeah. group, is that yeah. right? We're part of the Rustic Canyon group. Obviously, Rustic Canyon being our flagship restaurant. We also own Esther's, which is our wine bar and restaurant. Casilla, which is a Thai restaurant. We have Milo and mm. Olive, which is Italian. So, yeah, we're a pretty, pretty big group. Yeah. Oh, wow. So I know from Rustic and Birdie G's that there's this emphasis on organic ingredients, you know, farm to table. Is that throughout the restaurant group or is that just those two restaurants? And and talk about a little bit what that is, how that's managed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it got to a point where, yes, the entire restaurant group, uh, you know, sort of works with that in mind. We promote small farmers who are typically farming organically as well. And we pride ourselves on using as many organic ingredients as we can. And so it got to a point where it was like, well, if this is how we source our ingredients for food, this is absolutely how we should be sourcing wine and beverage. Um, it was kind of a no brainer. Um, and you know, these are questions that we get from our guests often. So we realized there was a demand for it. People are asking for organic wine they're asking about you know sulfur intake and levels and things like that and so i i think it was a natural progression for us um 
the way we manage it is we're definitely very vocal with the reps that we work with and we let them know, you know, we're only going to be purchasing wine that is 100% farmed organically. We don't require certification because, you know, that can get difficult and expensive depending on the size of the producer. And so practicing organic is totally fine as long as we know for sure they're not using chemicals. And then we really like to promote winemakers that are going above and beyond and doing biodynamic farming, regenerative, no-till, dry farm, things like that. I mean, that's really important to us. That's very cool. You sound very knowledgeable about that. Um, (laughs) I I mean, I just wrote an article about practicing organic, but not certified, you know, and the the whole practicing organic thing. And, And I've definitely, as a winemaker, went in looking for grapes, run into people who will use organic as a keyword. And then when I dig in, I'm like, you are not organic at all. Like, I don't even know why you're using that other than just to get my attention, which you did, obviously, which seems a little dishonest. So how do you, when you, when you, sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say, that's definitely a, a part of the conversation, you know, when we're talking with our reps, when they bring us, you know, different wines to taste and we ask, you know, it's it's definitely a conversation that has to be had with the producer and, and an honest one, you know, um, yeah. because a lot of times we're told, yeah, it's organic, but, or, or they'll say the, the big thing we were running into is we were being told it's sustainably farmed. Oh and yeah. What does that mean exactly? Like what, what that's is a great it? question? Yeah. What, that's the conversation that we've been having a lot. It's like, okay, but I don't know exactly like that, that is different for every producer. Yeah. There is certified sustainable, which means something. But when people say sustainably farmed, it's pretty meaningless, I've found. Yeah, exactly. Um, Sustainable can be about business practices. It can be about the way you treat your employees. And it could be about farming. mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah, it could mean like like maybe use compost in your fertilizers and your soil. I, I don't, yeah. So when we make this promise to our guests, we want to ensure that we're not lying to them, you know? So anytime we taste, we, we really dive into the farming practices to make sure that we're all on the same page so that I'm not telling a guest that something's organic and it's not. Well, that's that, I mean, that adds a little layer of extra legwork. It seems like. Yeah. But it's really rewarding. Buying process. Yeah, it is definitely. And and we're so fortunate to work with reps that understand this about us. And so they do the digging. And so when they come to us, great. you know, it's done. And they, they have so much knowledge to impart on us, which we really appreciate. Um, That's great. I in, in my article, there's something maybe be useful to you. It's called the, a pesticide use report. That is, California has this amazing tradition going back to I think the fifties where every agricultural producer has to report every pesticide that they use every year in what amount and on what area and on what crop. And there's like, I think the database goes back to the seventies that they started tracking it. Um, So you can literally pull up every producer's records of the pesticides that they've reported using over, you know, up until, you know, today, basically, yeah, um, through through that. publicly available records in California. So it's it's a great resource. It's a little difficult to find the information. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've given some helpful links and some shortcuts on that article that I did. 
Um, I'll, I'll tell you about it later. I'm not trying to promote the article or anything. I just no, really I, think it, it would be useful in your position to know about this. And that's why I'm trying to get the word out about it because I didn't know about it until recently either. And I'm like, this is amazing. Like, first of all, congratulations, California. Wow. Second of all, why aren't we telling more people about it? It's really a great resource to check up and see who's being honest and who's not. Absolutely. Um, and who does the reporting? Like the producer has to report it? So the the producer does the reporting. That is a weak point um, in that you could lie. You know, right. you could misreport or underreport or, you know, just not report something you've used. Uh, mm -hmm. But generally, if you do that consistently, there are ways that you can get caught. And so it's not worth it. I mean, the stakes are, you know, the stakes, f the benefit to lying probably doesn't give you that much advantage versus the penalty of being found out. Um, because they they can track sort of your uh, business expense re receipts and things like that. And and also just like if they start seeing anomalies, like you did just these things, on, you know, you only sprayed these things on a thousand acres. That's interesting. <laughs> that seems really yeah. light, you know. Um, I definitely so it, that yeah. out. Yeah, no, it's really cool. I'll, I'll tell you about it. But um, anyway, my point being, I think that's great that you guys have that effort and and emphasis to to dig into that and i i agree it is there is a a cost to doing mm -hmm. organic and biodynamic farming and i know some people just choose not to get certified but are are legitimate in that they they have very strong values they would never put any synthetic chemicals or step outside the bounds of organic or biodynamic but they just don't get certification so it's yeah. but you do have to be careful because other people use it for marketing purposes um right i <laughs> I, dig I digress though um <laughs> going back to birdie g's which is one of my favorite restaurants i have to say and where i met you which i'm glad i did um you were fantastic and tasted some great wine and had that alsatian dish that was like sauerkraut with like five different things that you guys make like um yeah, the chacrute royale the that was it <laughs> yes and it wasn't even on the menu the last time i went because it was so big i think it was like you could only have it with like three people yeah um, crushed it because you're awesome <laughs> <laughs> we were very hungry and i think it was more that we wanted to drink the wine and we just had to have something to eat it with yes. um, <laughs> and i always but, uh, look forward to when you guys came in even before i knew you were a winemaker because you always wanted to try really fun stuff and that those are my favorite interactions of course uh yeah i love well i mean and don't get me started i'll geek out on <laughs> wine for too long and you'd never be able to get to your other customers but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that does bring up the question. You you mentioned that, you know, customers were asking about organic and stuff. Did I, I assume that the the emphasis came naturally and that it wasn't a result of just customer feedback and customer queries that drove you to say, hey, we need to have this emphasis on, you know, organic, local, biodynamic or better uh, farming in both the food and the wine. Um, but to what extent does, you know, do you get those questions from your customers and to what extent does that inspire changes in what you do? And have you seen trends of that increasing? Yeah, I think, you know, our restaurant group being based in Santa Monica, it, Santa Monica is a very environmentally conscious city. Yeah. They banned plastic straws and, and plastic in general and, you know, things like that. So 
because of that, I feel like our customer base is definitely very conscious about the environment. And I think another reason we wanted to move toward organic farming is in our wines is because it is better for the environment. Um, I think it just goes hand in hand with our company's values too. Um, and yeah, I think we were getting that question all the time. And But more so, I think as a company, we really wanted to move in that direction anyway. And so it was really nice to be able to have a product for them that we felt really good about and that we're really excited about. Um, I think once people started learning about egg whites being used for clarification in wines, I think we got a lot of questions about, you know, vegan wine and things like that. Right. We wanted to have a couple of those around that way we had something for for our vegan guests, of course. Um, yeah. But yeah, I've noticed a lot of questions about like sulfites, which, you know, I have my own opinions about, but I, <laughs> I definitely have, you know, a good amount of, you know, no, no sulfur added wines for those guests that are, you know, made really elegantly and um, they're not too like, you know, barnyardy or funky or anything. But um, uh, so that's been nice to have that for the guests. So yeah, I, I do think there was a, a market for it. Um, and and yeah. we get that question often. I mean, uh, I, I guess my you know, one, I guess the, the behind the question question that I'm asking is, do, do customers have power? Like, do consumers no. have the power to change, you know, business and shape the way that business is operating in terms of, you know, it, you know, you know, providing organic options and things like that? I think, yes, for sure. I mean, at the end of the day, we are selling them a product and we want there to be demand for it. So, I, I wasn't a part of the the decision to go fully organic, unfortunately. So I can't really attest to sort of the birth of that. But right. I, I have to assume that it had something to do with the demand from the customer. Um, but but also, I really think that environmental impact was important to us as well. And you know, we have a lot of buying power. There's five restaurants buying wine. So if we're supporting these smaller producers, I think that is a huge impact in in kind of the trend of organic farming and wine too, supporting that and knowing that there's, there are buyers out there that are going to have interest in it, you know? Yeah. Uh, what questions do you think customers should be asking when they're coming in? Hmm. <laughs> um, that's a good question. I do, I do agree that questions aren't being asked um, as much. I think, it's hard to develop trust with the customer, right? Mm. It's their first time, you know, they have no idea who you are. They know what they like. So they're just, they order fire things that they're used to, um, that they know that, you know, is fail safe. Um, and so my goal is always to have a friendly, non-judgmental approach so that if I do say, hey, you know, this is the style of wine that you like. I have something that's really like new and interesting. Let me put it in front of you and see what you think. Mm. That's really where I try to go. And then the questions arise from that because they're like, oh, she's taking an interest in my experience and I want to know more about this. And so I think the, I guess the questions that I would like people to ask is, you know, what should I drink? <laughs> What's good with this? You know, um, but I know, I understand as a consumer, it is hard to trust, especially if you've never been somewhere before, that they're not just going to pour you a $30 glass of Cabernet, you know? So I try to 
create that approach of, 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 to inspire that trust, essentially. And I imagine you've learned a thing or two about how to build that trust, like how to be a good sommelier. What, what are, what are the techniques that you use to, to do that? Yeah. And, and I guess the way to answer that is I I don't really present myself in an intimidating way. I, I try to be really, I, and genuinely I'm very enthusiastic about what I do. And so I think people are drawn to that. I think I go into it, you know, I'm not stuffy. I'm not judgmental. I really am trying to get them something that they like. And I never make them feel stupid for not knowing something, which I think happens a lot. And I think it's helpful that I don't, yeah, I don't really like, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. I think there is this general misconception about what a sommelier is and how they are. And I just think I'm a little different. And so I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get it. I mean, I will. I will say you're one of my favorites, if not my favorite, because of the way that you approached us. I mean, you didn't, you, you absolutely were not, uh, did not come with a, like a, an off-putting manner. You were very, your energy was very welcoming. And in fact, I think you started with questions. You started asking us about our likes and preferences and things like that okay. to just draw us out. Of course, we're total wine sluts, so we love everything. <laughs> So I made your job hard, but I, you know, that approach, I think must be what works well. It must be one of the secrets because I I think, you know, my response to it is always, oh, I finally found somebody who, you know, gets it. Like they're not trying to present something to me. They're, they want to, they, it's immediately when you ask a question, it's not judgmental. You know, you're, you're trying to find out something about somebody. You're not trying to give them something basically. Yeah. I mean, ultimately I just firmly believe that wine is for everybody. And, and I really, I, I, there's a lack of education in wine in our culture in general. So I never want someone to feel like wine is above them or out of their reach because it, it just takes a, a couple of facts to learn, you know, what works for you. Like, and so I try to bring that to people. So what, what kind of things do you look for? Like, what are the, because I imagine you have to translate a little bit when you're asking people these questions and they say, well, I like this or like that. What, what are some, you know, things that flag things in your mind? Like you, they say this and that means this, like, what do you listen for? Yeah. I think a lot of people will typically compare to varietals they're very used to. So they'll say, I usually like Pinot. Or I like Malbec, and that tells me usually everything I need to know. I mean, it tells me they like light-bodied, low tannin. They, if they like Malbec, they like big fruit. You know, they like extraction. So that definitely helps. Uh, and then I will sort of press and say because there is a big difference between American style wines and European style wines. So I, that's usually my next question. And if that feels like it's going a little above their head, I'm like, let me just get something in front of you. That's always my, my tactic because when someone can taste, obviously they develop their, their uh, opinion right away. And it doesn't feel over their head because it's in front of them. They're looking at it. It's sensory, you know? Do they, I mean, and you get that immediate reaction, which then 
tells you everything. Do right. you do you find? I mean, I guess I will go back and from our experience. I think your your response is really good. I mean, your response to that is is very informative as well because it's you you are taking a beat, interpreting it, and then saying, great, then I think you'll really like this. There's no, again, like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> like again, no judgment came across. Right. And a lot um, of times I can get a sense of, and I'll even ask this sometimes, do you like more classic style wines? Or are you interested in something a little off the beaten path or adventurous? And that usually piques interest as well. Like, oh, you know what? Let's try something that I've never had before. Or, or you know, that's typically the conversation that happens and I, and it's pretty illuminating and I don't need to really be like, well, do you prefer, like, I don't have to be like stuff. <laughs> That's plenty of information for me to work with. I imagine you have to be careful about the language that you use. You, sure. you clearly know a lot and could you could just break down a wine like in the way that any critic would, you know, or any sommelier to, you know, trying to pass some large exam would do a blind tasting, but I'm sure that that's not very helpful for the customer. So no, like I'm never going to say it tastes like gooseberries. Like nobody in America knows what a gooseberry tastes like. I'm sorry. <laughs> they just don't. <laughs> and so, yep. so no, I think the more useful terms are like, is it fresh? Is it unoaked? Is it, you know, things like that. Is it, is it bright? Is it youthful? People can understand that mm-hmm. um, much more than, you know, those sort of really, specific tasting note tasting notes because if they've never you know tasted a watermelon radish before they're not going to know that it tastes like, <laughs> like watermelon radish <laughs> so i try to keep it really like i don't want to say easy but i try to keep it understandable and and, and uh, tangible for them yeah yeah like and there is like a bit of translation because you there every subculture has its own insider language and you know there's that's unavoidable but you always imagine have to have that part of your brain that's like if i never you know if this is if i'm new to wine or whatever if i you know if i'm not part of that subculture of like the wine industry what does that sound like to to me when i say whatever what are some of the terms that you you that are in vogue that uh make you laugh or or annoy you Oh gosh, I don't know. Annoy me. <laughs> um, I've noticed that uh, crushable is a big one lately. Um, smooth is another yeah, one. I guess smooth can smooth can work though. Is that overused? Yeah, smooth is used a lot by the guest, and they just mean soft, right? Like soft, right. Tan, and they want you know absence of strong tannic. Or, or yeah, lower acidity exactly. Right. Um, I don't know if there's anything that like bothers me. Okay. Uh, no, it's all right. I think it's because I've just tried to be so patient when it comes to that. Like I, because I'm trying not to be sort of uh, stuffy. I guess I try to like let everything roll off. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, that, that makes sense. Um. Let's see. Maybe it'll come to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right. But you did say a few leading things that I would love you to talk more about. So like what, do you know, how does one become a sommelier? Like what do you need to, how did you get the skills that you have? I mean, clearly you have a way with people, which is the people skills seems like a big part of it. And 
maybe the biggest part, like how important, I mean, obviously you got to know the wine that you're talking about. You got to know something about wine. How did you get all that? And what do you think somebody needs? Let's say you're talking to somebody who's interested in becoming a sommelier. What, what are, or just in general? I think the first thing to identify are what are your goals in that? Um, Because there can be so many different ways to do this, which is so great because I think in the past there was one linear route and now we're seeing that there are a lot of different ways to do this. And so I think if your goals are to run a wine program at like a Michelin starred restaurant, Mm -hmm. you should go through the court and do things and, and become a master sommelier, you know, that, maybe is your path. Um, I think for me, I was very unconventional in my path here. And you're right. I think connecting with people and realizing that wine does that was, was kind of the moment that I realized this was for me. Um, I were you unconventional. Sorry. If you continue your thought, but then I'm just curious when you say unconventional, how, what did you mean? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm I'm mostly referring to certification. I'm not a certified sommelier. I have taken formal classes, but I never felt like becoming a master sommelier was really my dream. Um, and that's what I mean. I think most people that do set out to be a sommelier want to be the best. And so they aim for that mm-hmm. master sommelier title. Um, whereas I, and maybe I'll get there. I don't, who knows? But as of right now, that doesn't really seem to be my path. I think I started out at a prominent restaurant in downtown Los Angeles and I was a server there and it was a very dynamic wine program that changed or by the glass wine list that changed just about every day. And so the standard for us as servers, we were expected to know the wines by the glass very well. And so that, that was my introduction pretty much into wine because I wanted to be the best. And so I studied every single one and I wanted to know everything and, Soon I started to realize that we're, we weren't just selling booze. We were, it was more than that. It was, you know, as you know, um, it was history and language and culture and science and climate and geography. And that really opened the doors for me. And I, I felt a connection and I loved, yeah, I just, I, I loved what, how wine brought people together because it did in my family, my family is from Spain. And so that was a staple at, at our dinner table. Um, so anyway, I, after a few years working at that restaurant, I was like, you know what? I think this is for me. Um, I'm going to try this out. And so I, when Birdie G's opened, I was the floor sommelier. So I was a server, but on a few nights, I was the, the floor sommelier, essentially. Um, and that's when I started taking classes. I took some WSET classes and I just immersed myself. Um, I, I, I wanted to know everything. And so I just absorbed as much information as I could. And luckily, Catherine Coker, who's the wine director for the Rustic Canyon Group, you know, she doesn't require certification for these positions. As long as you have the knowledge and you, you know, know what you're doing, then that's all that matters. And, and, at the restaurant and, in Los Angeles, the wine director there is not certified either. So he didn't require that as well. He, So I think there is like kind of a new frontier for that. It's an ongoing uh, process, the learning process as well. Oh. I mean, every year there's new wines and new things to learn and new stories and everything and else too, right? Another thing that drew me to it is that it was a never-ending journey of 
knowledge and I it's it'll never be boring ever and I mean obviously you're exposed to a lot of great information just by virtue of your job is there are there other ways that you try to continue your education yeah I mean I definitely refer to my wine bible often as most do (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know anytime because there are so many you know AOCs and and Oh yeah. You'll, even the people that pretty much know everything don't. And so it is a constant reference, you know, as you're learning. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely refer to that. Um, I, I try to stay current on what's going on too. I read online publications. I love Eric Asimov's New York Times column. I read that all the time. And then when I'm like yeah. teaching, like, cause I have to teach the staff. Um, I really like wine folly, <laughs> Madeline Paquette. She's oh, yeah. Great at breaking things down in a way that really is just very easy to translate to people. And she's a graphic designer. And I think mm, the visuals. The visuals are so great. I mean, I, I'm definitely a visual learner, but I think yeah. most it's really easy to attach information to these visuals, especially the geography of wine, of course. And so yeah. I definitely use that when I can. And do, have you done some traveling and some experiential learning, as in tasting, yeah. <laughs> drinking wine and on location? For sure. I was in the Loire last year, which was magical. Oh, fantastic. That was the first region when I was first starting to study wine that piqued my attention, and I became obsessed. And so <laughs> we went last year. We spent most of our time in Vouvray and Touraine and Mont-Louis, that sort of central Loire area. Mm. it was magical I mean if for me I'm such a hands-on like learner and so to be there to meet the winemakers to see the land made me understand their wine so much more Mm. and I have so many plans to travel more but you know obviously (laughs) gotta wait (laughs) why the why the Loire if you were going to France for the was it your first time yes yeah so why the Loire I think I mean, why not one of the big ones, you know, bigger ones. I know it's was, big. Yeah. Originally there was a plan to go to Champagne, but I think the way our route was set up, cause we were in the South of France as well. Um, it kind of made sense to go there okay. sort of as far as like trip planning goes, but yeah, originally it was Champagne. Um, but I think there was that sort of kind of nostalgic connection to this region that piqued my interest in wine. And so I think it was more of like a, an emotional response. I wanted to be there um, to experience it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, do you find that most Psalms do have that kind of experience in wine countries, you know, or, or don't like what's more common that they're, they've traveled and been to places and tasted the wine there or that they haven't? Yeah, definitely. A lot of times there are organized tasting trips that a lot of sommeliers do. Um, or, you know, you work a harvest, which is definitely something that I plan on doing. Um, I think that's such a great idea. I mean, yeah, talk about hands on. I mean, let's. Yeah. And yeah. also just learning. I mean, the other thing I would say, even for sommeliers, is I would love to see more sommeliers just even at home make some homebrew wine, you know, oh, wow. um, just for the sake of knowing where some of the flavors and things come from in the, you know, like seeing that whole process of like how it changes, how it tastes when it's fresh, how it tastes when it's, you know, been settling in, in barrel or carboy or whatever vessel for, you know, six months. And then how it tastes in bottle when you fresh, you know, first 
bottle it versus a year later. I mean, that whole experience of the evolution of a single wine and all the things that can happen, all the things that you can do to change the flavor is so, I think, informative to people. I, I love that you've done a harvest. That's fantastic. Um, I, don't, I feel like that's not common. Or you haven't done, you I want have, to do. I, I want to, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but I'm jumping ahead in your life. Sorry. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you, you should get a chance to live it. I apologize. <laughs> um, but I hope you do. I mean, I think that is yeah. really, I think it's just really good. I think it will revolutionize your your understanding of wine, honestly. Like just, it, it's, it really, you can't, you can't replicate that knowledge by book learning or even visiting and watching, you know, seeing, right. you know, being there during a harvest, like actually every step in the process working it is is revolutionary really um, absolutely and you started talking about um sulfites i just wanted to go <laughs> revisit that so is it is do you think that a lot of consumers just misunderstand sulfites and have a lot of misinformation about you know how they affect them personally and how important they are in wine or yeah. Yeah, I think people get headaches from wine and they attribute it to the amount of sulfur in the wine. Right. Which, yeah. depending on the person, is, I mean, I'm allergic to sulfur medication and I'm literally in the wine industry and I'm fine. So, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think there is a misconception. Um, I think it's, I think just for the record, I think if you're asthmatic, I think you're, there's like 1% of asthmatics have an actual real sulfite allergy. And that, so obviously it's already a small percentage of the population. And then it's a very small percentage of that small percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. So it's highly likely if you're getting a headache from wine that has nothing to do with sulfites. Right. And, and I know (laughs) that obviously I don't want to make them feel, you know, stupid. Right. Right. It's a hard conversation to have. It's yeah. a hard conversation. Yeah. And and so I briefly touch on, you know, that sulfites are naturally occurring or I will, you know, show them we have quite a few producers that add the minimum tiniest amount of sulfur at bottling and that's it, you know, and right. usually that is, that appeases them. Um, and I do have no sulfur wines, but I tell them that it, there are still naturally occurring ones, you know, it's right. hard to avoid it completely. And so they, yes. they understand. Yeah, it's it's funny with just uh, just was talking to a producer who can like has a certified organic winery, and so they can make organic wine uh, if they don't add sulfites. You know where they can actually write on the label organic wine, but mm-hmm. they have been in circumstances a couple times where even when they don't add sulfites, the the threshold rises above that ten parts per million that it has to be below for them to say that without them even adding it. So the naturally occurring sulfites is too high for them to even meet the requirement. So they have to say like made with organic grapes basically instead of, you know, organic wine. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's, and I mean, you know more about this than I do, but how do you even really control that? I mean, right. Yeah, I know. Unless we come up with like a sulfite filtering process. <laughs> I think that's probably not going to happen. Probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so aside from these developments that uh, clearly there are other paths to take, uh, depending on what your goals are as a sommelier. Um, you know, like I said, I, I feel like sometimes Michelin 
starred restaurants or that sort of high-end dining experience is so rarefied and so tense that it's not even pleasure bringing for me <laughs> like um it, it's an interesting thing i know some people love it and want that and that you know it's a special treat but i i personally am much more fond of birdie g's and that experience the experience that you guys provide um I, but my point is clearly there are different paths that you can take that mm-hmm. don't involve going through the court of master sommeliers i mean you did wset which isn't a i mean you you can become a, a master of wine but it's not like a specific service related uh job mm-hmm. maybe a certification uh, it's more like a diploma right so mm-hmm. yeah. I've, i mean i've i've done the intros for both that and the court um so i have a little dabbling experience with both mm-hmm. but it's aside from those different paths are there other things that you think that have been thought of as musts for sommeliers that are are getting a little more lax or a little loosened or people are beginning to realize it's less important for that career, for that job. Yeah. Seeing it changes. Right. I think it definitely depends on the business owner, of course. So, you know, if a Michelin starred restaurant group, you know, they require that for their employees in the wine department, obviously that's their prerogative. And there are super high end restaurants that are Michelin starred that may not. I mean, I think it depends on the opinion of, the business owner, of course. Um, I think when you work wine retail, you don't necessarily require certification. And and I've heard from colleagues of mine that they learned more working in wine retail than they did in their formal classes. So I think it just really depends on the way in which you learn best. Um, And my only experience is working here in Los Angeles and of the few restaurants I've worked in, none of them required certification. So I don't know if it's city based that maybe LA is just a little more relaxed when it comes to these things. And maybe I've heard New York and San Francisco might be a little more uh, concerned with your certification. It really just depends. But from what I've heard, uh, you know, LA is a little more, they ease up on that for the most part. Didn't um, Michelin say that they weren't going to give any stars to LA based restaurants a little while ago? Is this a real thing? This is like a a rumor last year, I believe. And they did award, but it was the first time in a long time, right? I think since 1994. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we've, maybe we've just developed a more of like a punk rock, like we don't need you kind of, yeah attitude here in LA (laughs) like like we're a little counterculture you know like if you don't like us we don't need you kind of thing. right I think that's definitely a valid theory and I I think it's a shame to assume that somebody doesn't know as much because they don't have certification and I'm fortunate for superiors that know that that's not the case Um, and I do get that question all the time um, I think guests like, are you certified? Yeah, I think I know they're just making conversation. Um, right. But sometimes it, I, I wonder if it's like judging the experience or intellect that I have in the subject. I'm not sure, but um, I do think things are moving in a different direction. Um, well, you brought up a good point. Have you faced uh, prejudices or? criticism based on any aspect of who you are whether it's your you know lack of that that 
normal path of going through the court. Maybe it's not that normal anymore, but you know, <laughs> that, that certificate, that stamp seal of approval kind of thing or any, anything else like, if, you know, it's, I, I know it's tough working with people in any capacity. So I imagine you have some interesting encounters. Yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, the thing is, I, I really, I think because I have this sort of friendly approach and unfortunately, you know, being a woman in this industry is not the easiest either. I think that is changing for the better, but so sometimes I do uh, face a little bit of Oh, a female sommelier. Like people are like, oh, um, okay. They're a little off off put by the fact, or or maybe because I'm very approachable, they mistake my enthusiasm and approach for lack of intellect or lack of experience. But you know, I I realized when I did let it get to me, I realized you know that is out of my control. The only thing I can do is be myself, and I'm confident in the knowledge that I and experience that I have, and I'm still gonna do a great job for you, whether or not you think I'm capable. So, but, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that our clientele is so wonderful and it's been very rare that I've had that experience. Have yeah. you won anybody over who was initially sort of like harumph about working with you? Yeah, I think the wine helps in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> A few glasses in, they love you. Yeah, so I think um, ultimately maybe they're a little little hangry when they first order their wine and then mm, yeah. a couple yeah. a couple sips it's okay no i have no i have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> no it uh, actually, that that has not been a, a big issue for me um so yeah do you do you get to uh, select the wines i know you said Catherine is really like the the wine director for the group do you do you get to participate in wine selection Yes, I am so fortunate that I'm also a buyer. So I will do control what goes on and off the list. Um, In an effort to maximize our time efficiently, pre-COVID, we would meet once a week, all of the Psalms for the the restaurants in our group. And the reps, I think three or four reps uh, would come and do presentations to all of us. That way, you know, we could be a little more efficient. And, and we try not to have the same wines by the glass on our lists to try to diversify each restaurant. So that also helps us get on the same page to make sure we're two songs are not duplicating by the glass. Things. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Got it. So what's your most exciting buy recently? Or what, you know, what, what have you been excited to bring to the restaurant? Well, I haven't bought much recently, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah let's, let's talk about that. What's how's it been going? What, um, how... I think, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously trying to be as conservative with our spending as much as possible until we have a better sense of what the landscape looks like for our industry. Yeah. Um, so I'll sort of reference your question to pre-COVID purchases. But um, one wine I was super excited to bring on um, was a Premier Cru Champagne from Jen Pelka. She owns the Riddler Champagne Bar in San Francisco in New York. She basically sought out to make organic Premier Cru Champagne that was entirely produced by women, distributed and funded by women. So we sought out uh, Juliet from Gonet Medvi, who they produce our champagne by the glass already. And... um, yeah, they created uh, Une Femme, uh, which is a line that is all, uh, all of their wines will be funded, produced, and distributed by women. Um, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's, of course, it's a, it's gorgeous champagne. Um, 
And so I was really excited to bring that on. Obviously, as a female sommelier, I try to promote as many female producers as I can. Um, and the wine is called the Juliet. So she names them after the, the woman who made it. Um, uh, lovely. Yeah. That's such a great story. Do yeah. you, uh, and how, how has it been received? How have customers received it? Oh, it's, it's so great because it's so celebratory. I mean, a lot of times, like, we, I was going to promote it for Mother's Day, but unfortunately, we were closed due to COVID. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Anytime there's a, a gathering, uh, specifically, usually of women, or I had a, um, a graduation celebration, it was a father with his two daughters, who were celebrating their graduation. And I told them about this wine. And he was like, Oh, absolutely. It's it's exactly the perfect wine for the celebration of my two daughters graduating. So it was it was really, it's it's been really well received. I mean, that's fantastic. Can people buy? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, can people buy uh, whole bottles from the restaurant at this point? Now we can. Yes, we have a, okay. a retail license, so we are offering that. As well. Did did you have to get a retail license during this quarantine time, or I'm, did you, or did they open the license that you had to retail sales? Yeah, I think it was more the latter. Um, okay, that's what I thought. I'm sure it's a permanent situation. I I was not involved in that, unfortunately, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's. A temporary situation just to kind of help out during these yeah. times. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We also have like a sidewalk license now so people can drink wine on the sidewalk and, and cocktails and stuff. So So but. if you were if you were giving your younger self advice about um getting into this business, Benny, what have you learned that you wish you knew, you know, five years ago? Mm. That's such a great question. I would say it took me a while to realize this, but to just be yourself. Mm. I know that sounds kind of trite, but I I think I had an idea of what a sommelier should be. Mm. And I was fortunate to see that there is another way that you can just be yourself. You don't have to follow the same path that everyone did. You can learn in the way that works best for you. And if you are authentic in that, people will gravitate toward you and they'll understand your methods. And I I think that once I realized that, that other people's opinions were out of my control, I think it really helped me press on. Yeah, that sounds like a great piece of advice for any industry yeah. or otherwise <laughs> i love that i also think i would tell myself to buy wine that i actually like it doesn't matter what other people think about it mm. well what do you like these days like what are you tra- excited about oh oh my gosh yes yeah, <laughs> things <laughs> um, so i am i mean pre-covid mostly but i had been taking a deep dive into galicia since I have history there. My family lives there. I wanted oh. to better understand the the wine region since I knew so little about Spanish wine and do plan to make a trip for oh, me too. professional reasons. Yeah, Seriously, if totally professional reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I've kind of been researching sort of the biodynamic, biodynamic practices of the Ribera Sacra and I fell in love with Laura Lorenzo's wines from Deterra. And she makes this uh, 100% Palomino, which I didn't even know what that grape was, to be honest with you. And so, <laughs> I, isn't that what they use in sherry? Yep. One of one of the grapes that they use mm-hmm. in sherry. 
Yeah. Um, and she makes a still palomino that is just so exotic and aromatic and so much salinity and just a couple hours of skin contact. So it's, it's unique without being kind of like, you know, over the top barnyardy. Right. Yeah. Right. Without having to change, like to turn your head upside down to be able right, to exactly. understand it's it. Rustic, but it's also so bright and fresh. And my first kind of dive into this grape, um, besides, wow. or, or this style of winemaking with this grape. So, um, and I've always been obsessed with Etna too. I just, there's something, so, <laughs> there's something you and so me both. about the wow. fact that I'm surprised we haven't talked about it. I know. <laughs> Did right? we talk about it? Oh my gosh. I've been to Etna. I, oh. I can't, I I will tell you, if you go to Etna, stay in Taormina, um, which is one of the most beautiful places on earth. And it's on the Mediterranean coast there, right at the base of Mount Etna, where there's like, there is a 2000 year old uh, Greek and then later Roman amphitheater that's Mm -hmm. huge. Like it would have set a thousand people. And the backdrop to the stage is the smoldering mount etna like it would be like if you were acting you would be upstaged by the erupting volcano at times (laughs) like it's and you're like 500 feet up over the mediterranean on cliffs over the mediterranean it is just it is just stunning and it's the whole town is on the hills on the cliffs so there's like there's stairways connecting the streets because you you know it's pretty much just like one main pedestrian street that's sort of like the the third street promenade but obviously Italian style, very narrow and charming and, you know, ancient. And then you have to walk up steps, you know, like to the next street above and down steps to the next street below. It's, it is just, you got to go. And the, and the, when you're up on the volcano tasting the wine, it's, it is, it's magical. I mean, it's the Italian way to do it too, is like you you might get one tasting in in an afternoon because you're going to sit there and you're going to have, cheese and charcuterie and then sausages and beans and and they're going to leave the bottle on your table so they're going to you're going to look around and be like can we just have more and and, and you're going to be like yes we can just have more oh, and that is next on the bucket list for sure oh, yeah it, it is really beautiful and and uh i actually recommend going in the off season because there's never a bad time there and mm. coming from la i think traveling during rainy seasons is for for europe there's fewer tourists and we don't get rain here anyway so it's kind of like a refreshing change you know um anyway those are my inside tips for visiting sicily um especially yeah um but yeah okay so etna obviously (laughs) what else what else what else i don't know who who on Etna have you encountered that you've uh, gotten excited about? Frank Cornelison, obviously, um, yeah. has been kind of. There's just so much to unpack there, and so I really wanted to yeah. dive in and Foti, of course. Um, I had his Aurora Etna Bianco, which was so pretty and just kind of transported me in a time where I was stuck in my apartment, which is another amazing thing about wine. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, uh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. is a nice thing. Now, do you find people at the restaurant are ordering more of red or white or rosé these days? Is there a trend that you've seen or does it depend think, on the, the season in LA? For sure. I mean, I think summertime definitely brings out a lot more white wine and rosé mm-hmm. than in the fall. 
Um, but red wine always wins. I have to yeah. say, just across the board. And, and that's yeah. a, our food does seem like, Oh, this is really rich. I need red wine. But a lot of times it's, uh, it seems rich, but it's not. And so I try my best to kind of like push people in different directions, but, um, but yeah, it seems to be that red wine still is the winner. So you mentioned that unusual pairing of, I mean, it's not unusual once you understand it, but the mm-hmm. rosé of Syrah with the, the lamb, the way that you make it there at the restaurant. Mm-hmm. What's some of the more surprising pairings that you've had that just worked really well? Mm-hmm. Just going back to... We have these um, amazing lavender almonds. That's mm-hmm. one of our uh, kind of staple dishes that Chef Jeremy has been cooking, or not cooking, uh, has been preparing at um, a lot of his restaurants. And we had by the glass for a while this gorgeous sparkling rosé of Nebbiolo, um, oh, wow. which was the most perfect pairing. I swear, I could the lavender just sprouted out of that glass. Wow. It was gorgeous. Oh. Yeah, um, that sounds incredible. Really wonderful producer that actually mostly produces Erbeluche, um, the Favaro family, which is okay. just like you know they rehabilitated this grape that was dying. Um, but this particular sparkling rosé was fantastic. Let's see what else. Um, oh, I have this really nice kerner from Alto Adige. I think uh, that's the one I obsessed over when I oh, was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly I am too. I'm already talking about it again. Um, yeah, that one's really nice. We have this almost like Thai-inspired um, prawn dish that has like a coconut curry sort of feel to it the, in the gazpacho and these like really ripe sweet melons and lemongrass and chili flakes so there's just like a lot of flavors going on um and that is has just enough weight and just enough aromatics but it's still dry um yeah but a ton yeah that was residual yeah. sugar left just to cover that little spice it's, it's just it's so wild it's so good and i thought that kerner went great with everything honestly like I, I hadn't had a white that paired so well with like you know i mean well but definitely the pork um dish i forget what that was but mm-hmm. you know like several things even like the lamb you know it was crazy yeah. it was just it, it had I tell my servers that it's one of the most food friendly wines on the menu right now and will definitely kind of carry you through i also we had this oh it just came to me we had this amazing blood sausage dish and you hear those words, blood the morcilla or the morcilla. Yeah, yeah. We changed oh. it recently. Um, so we took the morcilla and we added this like cherry mustard and pickled mulberries and this like treviso sauerkraut. Um, and so you think like, oh, you need this like really intense, you know, big wine with this. And it was such an umami dish that I was like, I can't put anything too intense next to this. And I had this chilled red from from Michael Cruz, his like Val de Gay Carignan. It's called the Monkey Jacket Red Blend. And what, it, what jacket? Monkey Jacket. Monkey Jacket Red Blend. Okay. Sailor song. Okay. It named after. And it was, it had just like right amount of acidity and the right amount of grip. And it was still so fresh and did not distract from the umami of that dish. And it was like, you know, people would order it and be like, this is what you want to drink with this. And they're like, mm. <laughs> And I was like, no, I promise you. So I'd put it in front of them and they were like, oh, wow, this is so great. Yeah, it was really <laughs> great. Oh, man. Again, making me hungry. That's fantastic. 
That sounds great. That dish is no longer available. I'm sorry, everyone. (laughs) 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 Um, Well, last question or so. What's your, what, what big ideas have you been geeking out on lately? Like in what context? Like, um, I mean, wine generally, but, you know, related to your job, related to, I mean, the, you know, I, I haven't brought up like blind tasting, but I, I think I've talked to you about that in the past in my, yeah. but, uh, you know, something like that. Is there a, is there a topic that, that relates to sommeliers or mm-hmm. wine in general or anything that you've been just wanting to learn more about or you have a really strong opinion about right now? Yeah, I guess definitely the blind tasting thing. I I don't know. <laughs> I'm with you. I, I feel, it, I guess it's a, just a personal opinion, obviously, but I don't, I think it's, it's fun is really what, right. kind of like a, like a little game. Like what can I pull? Is, yeah. And I do think it, it absolutely helps with your, your palate and being objective. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, I, and it's not uh, really that important to me. Yeah. Obviously it helps with your deductive analysis of wine. Um, I guess, yeah, my biggest complaints are like, how does it like, like you said, your job, you know, my first question to you and you're like, my job is to sell wine. And I just, there's so much emphasis put on blind tasting for sommeliers, especially in the court's certification process, that I really don't see how all that time and energy and resources that is invested in that helps you sell wine at the end of the day. I mean, totally. It's definitely a personal experience because you have to do that to become a master sommelier. So I think that's why so much blind tasting happens. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I generally approach it as something just almost competitive, like kind of fun. Like how, yeah. you know, uh, and, and it happens with guests sometimes. They'll they'll tell me, can you just bring me a glass of something with this? Yeah. And I'll set it down and they'll be like, let me try to guess what it is. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's, I, I don't know. I look at it that way, which I don't want to obviously... Uh, deflect its importance for other people I, I don't you know it's just a personal sort of I, I don't really do much. yeah yeah I, I think and the the only the only extent like I I honestly could care less if you love doing blind tasting want to be the best blind taster in the world I just feel like if you again going back to sort of the non-traditional path I feel like the more effective way to become good at at you know table side sales of wine would be a to learn people skills and b to you know go work some harvests and make your own wine and really get a sense of what wine is from that holistic perspective you know absolutely Um, and and and, like i said before like to use those words that people can understand like instead of using these esoteric tasting notes which when you're blind tasting is important because you are trying to you know, identify the subtle nuances of this wine. Um, but typically in my uh, role in the restaurant, like that doesn't usually bring me any success. The more kind of esoteric I am, the more I lose them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's lovely. What, what, uh, what would you like to promote? Do you, do you want people to be able to get in touch with you? Is there an Instagram channel? Is there, sure. is there an, 
Is there anything you'd like to promote? Sure. Um, well, you can follow Birdie LA on Instagram uh-huh. and you'll see some of the delicious food I discussed um, and some of the wine pairings for those dishes. Um, you can follow me on my personal Instagram. Anytime I put a new wine on the list, I post about it with some facts and fun facts and what I would pair it with and things like that. So yeah, um, I will say my Instagram's a little politically charged at the moment. So just a warning, but uh, <laughs> it is interspersed with uh, delicious wine, I promise. <laughs> so my Instagram <laughs> handle is Clograms. So it's C-H-L-O underscore G-R-A-M-S. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you, Chloe, so much for doing this. It has been super pleasure to talk yeah, and learn more about you. And I, you know, thank you for sharing about all the stuff that I think is really fascinating. I agree. Great talking with you. And I can't wait till you and your wife come back. One of these days. <laughs> we can't be there. <laughs> <laughs>